and welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. As we become increasingly aware of wildlife's and society's needs, many of us are using our creative talents to showcase conservation issues, tell inspiring stories, and capture breathtaking moments in the wild to show everyone the spectacular wonders of our world. If we are to generate the most bang for our creative pursuits, then we need to be able to craft a meaningful story. So how does one write a good nature story? What elements should we include or exclude? What resources are out there to help us take our craft to the next level? To teach us all about nature storytelling, today we are sitting down with Rachel Wambui, writer, director, and filmmaker. Rachel began her career as a journalist writing for glossy magazines and top African newspapers. During her time as a journalist, she found herself naturally gravitating to sustainability stories. Her love of conservation writing was solidified when she had the opportunity to work for one of Kenya's top conservation organizations. Since then, she's published several conservation articles and co-directed a film just released called Saving the Vulture, One Man's Story. Rachel and I explore how she discovered nature's storytelling, elements that create an impactful story, resources to level up your storytelling skills, and the future of the industry. Whether you are a seasoned conservation content creator or you just started to craft your story, I'm sure you'll take away at least one nugget from today's conversation. All right, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Rachel. Wamboi actually in my tribe means the animal that's right behind you, the zebra. Oh, -uh. (laughs) no. Yeah, so that's, uh, so the zebra in Kikuyu, which is my ethnic group, Uh um, called Waboi Meshore. So Waboi is the name, and then Meshore means with stripes. Uh, so I don't know whether the zebra was named after Wamboi or Wamboi was named after, after the zebra, but I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing it was, it was the zebra that was named after the Wamboi because it's one of the names of the nine clans of my tribe. So a little background there. <laughs> How cool. Thanks for sharing yeah. that. What are the odds that this painting, <laughs> like how fitting, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, we've already yeah. starting back in time, which is the perfect setup. So tell me more about you, Rachel. When did you decide that you wanted to be a journalist? Were you always interested in writing growing up? Is this was just as a natural gravitation for you? Or yeah, how how did this start? Oh wow. Um, actually, I didn't start out writing. What I did a lot of is reading. Uh, mm. I was one of those kids who sort of preferred to stay indoors and um, and read. Actually, let me take that back. It's not that I preferred. I was brought up by one of those very typically strict African mothers who it was about 
don't be outside playing. I better not find you, you know, doing any other stuff with us. It's it's study, 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 and do nothing else. And so I think from a very early age, I just picked up uh, this very um, need to read. So I just read anything, anything that would come come my way. And in, in high school, that's when I really picked up that habit. And I'm sorry to say, actually, maybe I'm not sorry. I was one of those kids who, who would have a novel under my desk <laughs> all the time, <laughs> even when it was preps time and I was supposed to be doing chemistry or math. And like, I, I just couldn't be, be, be bothered, which has changed recently because now I love the sciences a lot. Um, uh, but yes, I, I started more with, with reading, reading a lot. And I think as time went by, I just started writing as well. So again, in high school, I, my my best friend and I had this thing where we used to handwrite novels, and so we would we would read all these. Um, that time it was it was what were we reading in high school? A lot of I don't know if you remember a series of books called Meals and Boons. No. <laughs> and so so there, there was this series of sort of like very romantic out there sort of narratives and so we started copying that and we we would actually handwrite books and pass them around the class <laughs> and people would be waiting for the next chapter we, we want to read your stuff um and so that's that's pretty much how it started and, and when i finished school i actually wanted to do either one of two things my mother thought i was going to be a lawyer uh, I didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> I wanted to do something in media. And I actually, funny enough, wanted to join the army. <laughs> and, 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 Why? And, and that, Why did you want to join the army? I don't know. It probably had a lot to do with um, with one of my favorite uncles. I actually have two uncles who were in the military, so they served. And there was a fascination with that as well. But I always wanted to be, I had this hankering for a very big life. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I wanted to be, to be out there doing stuff that is not sort of run of the mill. And maybe that has a lot to do with my, with now what I admit is a bit of a rebellious streak with me. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to just be the person sitting down and being in an office and so it's like I'm gonna join the army there was just something about being out there obviously my young teenage mind romanticized that a lot it's not what I thought it would be uh, and so I ended up just just uh, started writing and I I started writing I actually got published even before I, I finished my college um, and so like writing and actually getting published and getting paid for it went very concurrently co with me getting um, going to school, to journalism school as well. So it was a very natural progression for me. It was just something that came very naturally for me. And I, I would suppose that's also because of, of, of a lot of time reading. And also I was a very sort of sit back and observe people kind of person <laughs> so that's that's pretty much how it started 
I have to ask, just out of curiosity, um, is it common for women to be in the army? Would this have been like a super rebellious thing or or is it like more accepted now in Kenya for women to be in the army or? Yeah, just just curious. <laughs> That's a very good question, actually. Um, I do not know the current trend, but I, I suppose as in anywhere in the world, it's not the norm. I mean, you will not find a 50-50 representation of women and men in, in, in service, uh, just, but there are women um, in, in the military, but even back then it would have been, it's not the norm. And so I, I think for me, it was that sense of I needed to get out of where I was and, and now... <laughs> about it it's coming to me right now it was either just get out of where i was get out of my my small world or what felt like a very small world and and go see what the world uh had had to offer but to answer your question yes there are women in the military right now a lot of of stuff has changed obviously this was in the you know the early 2000s a lot has changed in the in the in the recent past in terms of women and representation and and all of that. So I, I think if I looked at the numbers, I would be surprised. I just haven't uh, in, in, in most recent times. Yeah. And I completely, yeah. girl, I completely relate to the feeling of needing to get out of your small town. Um, that was exactly me. And it's it's just funny how life comes full circle because now I'm like, oh, it's not that bad now that I've been all over the world and seen a whole bunch of things. So then let's go to your first publishing. What was that? Like, what's your first thing that you wrote and you got paid for? And what did that moment mean for you for the rest of your career? Oh, the first time I got published, actually... Oh my God, I don't even remember the year, but I remember the publication. There was uh, this magazine, it was the era of the glossy magazines. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, the time that's where I started my career. And I just walked into, into one of these. No, I emailed the editor and I told her, you know, can I contribute to your magazine? I, I'm a fan, I really follow it, I believe I can write. And uh, she called me to her office and she told me, well, I'm going to give you an assignment just to try it, to try you out. And this this magazine is called, was called True Love. Um, True Love was a very big brand across Africa, from South Africa to Eastern Africa. It was the leading sort of glossy magazine for, for women at that time. And so she gave me this assignment and, uh, and, and my job was to go and interview uh, a director for a hospital at that time it was the only women's hospital in Nairobi perhaps in the country but it was very new it's called Nairobi Women's Hospital and that time she was the 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 director for that hospital so my my first article was actually very feminist leaning I I suppose and I've never even thought about that and that's the first time I had my my name in print I believe I still have that <laughs> copy here somewhere <laughs> and and what did that mean for me there's something about seeing your your name in your byline I mean we writers we we 
the byline is very life changing. It, it, it sort of legitimizes you. It stamps you in as somebody who has a voice, especially in writing. And I got paid for it. I got paid. I, I believe at that time it was like eight thousand shillings, which is the equivalent of maybe, uh, maybe. I would say like seventy dollars or so now, but back then it was that was a lot of money. <laughs> I didn't even know, and maybe I was like twenty, twenty-one. I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> you know, like oh my god, so much money just for me. That was the first time I got published, and I I continued to 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 write for them for for a while until I actually got a permanent job in um in another magazine which was called uh, healthy woman which was fitness and wellness and nutrition and you know uh healthy living sort of lifestyle and that's when i really started making a mark in in my career as far as as writing and publishing is concerned and yeah the, the that continued for a while until after that, I went and started writing for the newspaper. Now, the newspaper was a completely different ball game. Although I was still in the features desks, um, I never really ever gravitated towards the news desk. I was My strength has always been writing features where I can sort of sit and analyze a subject, take a week or two, do interviews. And that's where my strength always was. The newspaper was was interesting because it's every week or so you get to see a whole spread. I wrote for the Saturday Nation newspaper, which is one of the two leading newspapers in Kenya. And and if you think seeing your byline in a magazine is big, seeing a double spread of your article <laughs> in a newspaper, a weekend newspaper, Oh, that is that is very satisfying, at least for that day, because I'm still an artist and we never get satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> Amen, sister. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. So at least for that time, it was a game changer for me. And and I think when I was working for the newspaper is when I really started interacting with narratives in a very sort of in a deeper way, I had the advantage of of having a really, really cool editor who for her, uh, for her it wasn't just about, you know, give me copy by deadline. For her, it was when we go for editorial meetings at first, you know, she would send us articles and say, read this article. And then on during our editorial meeting, I want you to come and tell me what struck you about it, what she she taught she taught me about, you know, telling stories with nuance. She's like, there's a reason why I don't want you to say, you know, your subject was sad. You know, don't tell me she was sad. Say something about what she was doing that will make me think, oh my God, she was so sad. You know. Mm. <laughs> And, and it's introducing that idea of show, don't tell, nuance. I Amazing editor. And if, if you have, have the, the privilege of, that is how I was introduced into, into really, really good storytelling. Well, obviously in, in school as well, 
but there's something about doing it when you're working and having, that's why I continue to believe in mentors. I, I still work with mentors even today. They change the whole ball game. So, so and and from writing, you know, in the newspaper, I would interact with something, topics like um, how is the Me Too movement being interpreted in, in our country because the way the way it's unfolding in the States is not the same way that it's unfolding in Kenya. It's not to say that that subject is not there, but but it's there. You know, one of the interesting articles that I did was, um, you know, the idea of what is sustainable fashion? What does sustainable fashion mm. look for us? And sitting down and interviewing uh, the founder of this sustainable fashion brand, and asking her, you know, yeah, you're sustainable and all of that. And I love you. I love everything that you're about, but your clothing still costs, it's very expensive. And, you know, this is the market that we are in. How do we make that, you know, make sense to to the Kenyan public? You know, but I'm sold, I, I, I'm sold, you know, but the average Kenyan who lives at, I don't know, like the, um, I, I'll, I'll check the numbers, but the average Kenyan is not going to be thinking about, you know, um, is my, what's the carbon footprint of my t-shirt? Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no. So how do we make, make that make sense in this landscape? And, and so like, those are the sort of, of ideas that I was attracted to, the, the sort of, of articles that I always gravitated towards um, society and sustainability and how they interpret, how do we make them very make sense for this market, for this audience. That's very important. Yeah. So then how did conservation into your life? Because it sounds like you had a fantastic journalism career before today and you could have kept doing that you could have kept going magazine to magazine newspaper to newspaper and and uh, writing all of these timely articles on whatever it was you know going on the time the current times but you didn't do that you made a switch to conservation obviously that's why we're sitting down today so why why did you decide to do something that was probably out of your comfort zone i would imagine and then dedicate pretty much the rest of your career to it. Was there like a moment that that happened? Or was there like a, yeah, just tell me how did this thing come to be in your life? <laughs> um, actually, I wouldn't say it was out of my comfort zone. Um, it, it was a very organic way. And it's it's always like a something that happened even really without my conscious effort, I guess. And that's why I say it wasn't so much planned out and it, it didn't surprise me that much. So I actually went for a press conference when I was working for the newspaper. And there's this one amazing marathon that happens in, in Kenya every year. And so I'm a runner as well. Uh, uh, well, on most of my good days, I run. I've, I've always been an avid runner. If there's a, I, I'm one of those people who will sort of structure their year around, you know, the marathons that I want to do this year. And so there's this one marathon that I had always wanted to do. 
and they were having a, a press conference about its launch. And I went to the post conference as, as a journalist. And so I, I approached the organizers because I wanted a press pass, uh, because one of the, of the things that I felt is that, you know, sometimes the, the registration for that race could be, it's not something that I was, I was going to be able to afford to do. And that ties in with the why of switching. I'll get back to it later. But so I, I, I approached the, the organizers and told them, look, uh, I am going to write about this this marathon. You just need to give me a pass uh, so that I can come and run. Well, part of me actually did want to write about it because it's this marathon that happens in a co conservation area. It happens right in the middle of the park. And, and it's this idea, the reason why I found it so fascinating and so alluring is that you're running in this space where where you're running with wildlife actually wow. as you're running as you're running these these choppers overboard just to make sure that animals stay away from the track and also <laughs> there's this idea, idea of the adventure again there goes that adventure adrenaline seeking person who wanted to join the army and it's like <laughs> I need to run this marathon. I need to run with the, <laughs> with the rhinos, man. Um, That's epic. <laughs> yeah. And so I and then I I I, I played my case, and and the organizers told me, you know what? Just send me a couple of the stuff that you've done, and we'll see what we can do. And so, long story short, I did end up getting the the press pass. Uh, to go and run, but this was in 2020, and this this was happening like in early March, and you know, two two months down the line, as I was prepping for for the marathon, everything shut down because COVID happened, and the all sports events were cancelled, and 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 then we couldn't do that anymore. But what ended up happening is that. Some months down the line, I got a call from from one of the organizers, and they told me, actually, because they still had my work with them, and I, I was already on their radar, and like, actually, this job is opening up, and um, would you be interested if you got it? Would you be interested in moving away from Nairobi and coming and living in the bush? And I said, Are you asking me? <laughs> I mean. Like I couldn't believe you. You're asking me this question, and so, so that's how I ended up uh, working as a as a communications officer uh, for this conservancy, which is one of the of the leading sort of conservation mobile models in in the region, and that was professionally. It was it was a big shift and I'll tell you why for in a moment but personally it felt like a very sort of natural uh space for me I had just gotten to a place where I was thinking I need to move out of Nairobi anyway I was thinking mm. of moving to the yeah I had be, I had actually been looking at places in the coast because as a writer I can live anywhere so I was like why can't I do this when I'm you know, just watching the ocean. <laughs> so right. I'm, very, I'm a very water 
I love the water, but I love the bush as well. And so I guess the universe chose the bush for me. So I moved to this. So on a personal level, it made sense to me. On a professional level, I felt as if I was, I was moving into a very different space. Um, different space in that, you know, coming to work in conservation is, is, is you actually do have to sit down and actually become a conservationist, right? So at, at, at one point I I realized, you know, but I I had to start describing myself as a conservation. I could not do this job if I did not actually sort of embed myself into into what it was. It's about you know, the wildlife, the landscape, the habitats, the people around there. It's the first time that I was living in, in a landscape where, you know, when we talk about communities, I mean, I, I, I told you, like, I, I grew up in a place where it's very, it, it's very heavily influenced by, by modernity. This was the complete opposite where communities actually mean you know, communities that are, have a very strong cultural uh, connection. And so it is a complete sort of re-education of, of, of life from where I was coming from in that sense, but also in a sense of like um, conservation, the way it's set up in this region, it felt as if I was moving to a place where that hasn't been traditionally being very popular or where people like me exist in you know you know what i mean and and so there was also this sense that i'm i'm moving into a very different career path but i'm also moving into a space where i traditionally i have not had or felt as if a lot of people who look like me are engaged in and, and this is one of the of the things that we've been trying to talk about it's that like this idea of of people especially african people having this sense of separation from from nature whether it happened uh by nature or by design you know that's a, another conversation but there's this very acute sense of 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 being separated from from wildlife and from natural spaces and from conservation as well, where we feel, oh, conservation is this big word that is about the science. Let us leave the scientists do it. Let us leave the, you know, the donors and the big multinationals do it. It's not our thing. Only to come in and and the more I stayed in that space, the more I thought, wait a minute. It, it is a science in that sense, but also to me, conservation has has come to a place where it now means really, it, it's a reconnection to nature, like really, like it's that simple. It's what do I do with this tree that is right outside my house? It's not this grand thing where, you know, there are all these boundaries and, and borders and 
and and unfortunately a, a history of segregation as well. It's really not that. And if we're going to get to a place where where we actually, you know, save nature, not that it's still something that I have a problem with saying save nature. But if we're going to get to a place where where we actually begin to protect this environment and all of that, it's got to be something that is very individual and very personalized. And, and, and that makes sense to me as a person. So there was there was that. And and so getting into co- co- conservation has been like a long, not very long, it has been a, a road to such a tremendous mind shift um, in terms of just seeing just how much I was disconnected and in connection how a lot of us are disconnected from agency of wildlife to a point where we only see, oh, elephants and lions, those ones are for tourists, you know. Oh, you know, uh, those national parks for tourists, you know, and, and, and why in our tradition, th- there was no such thing as conservation as a as a practice. Conservation just was, you know, this very natural process of daily life. It was very embedded with with education, with with spirituality, with with rights, with you know everything. Everything was nature, <laughs> you know. Everything was nature, and, and and so coming to that place has been such a tremendous mind shift. And and I think for me, more so than saying, yeah, sure, let's save the rhino by all means let's do that i'm not saying let's not say that but i'm more interested in like why what do i do how do i tell a story in such a way that my mother or my nephew understands the connection between her and a rhino you know that makes more sense to me it feels like it's more impactful yeah Absolutely. I agree. And I feel like this is the perfect conjunction point of what I would really love to dive into it today. And that is how you were able to mix your two loves of journalism and conservation. And I think today, maybe that might be told as nature storytelling. And if that is true, if that's what you want to, I mean, I'm not the journalist, so I'm, I'm really just, I want to pick your brain and like learn all the things from you right now. So to you, what is nature storytelling and what what makes a good story like you just said your goal is to make the person that lives with this wildlife in this ecosystem care because that is what's actually going to make conservation action which i've said so many times on this show like how do we make people care because if people care then they will have passion and they will protect the area that, that they love and that is how we're going to, just like I said, save, quote unquote, save, protect, keep our wildlife and our natural natural spaces here. So what is nature storytelling to you? And maybe what are some elements that make a good story? Like how do you approach essentially your work and what you do? How do you do that? 
Oh, that's a great question. So it actually depends on what the, the story is. I, I suppose in the first place, it's coming across a subject that really interests me. Uh, I'm going to talk about, for example, the last short film that I made with, with another filmmaker, Tuku. His name is Tuku Kamau. So uh, we co-directed, we did, it was just a, a crew of two and we did everything <laughs> and I did the narration. And the reason why I was attracted to that story, so in asking what makes a good story, it, 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 it's for me something that hasn't really been talked about, something that I can talk about from a very different perspective. And so we had a choice to choose between uh, one of three stories. The reason I chose this story, which has to do with vultures, actually, so why it's necessary that we save vultures, is number one, because the vulture, come on. I, I don't think I had ever really thought about what does a vulture have to do with anything? They're these, these you know, large animals that I know, birds that I, I think their work is to eat carcass. So what? But then the, the more I did the research and the more you realize just how much, how useful the vultures are to the landscape, even to to us as as humans, if first of all they are endangered, and if you start thinking about a world without vultures, you realize that that means a world full of disease because no any other I don't think there's any other animal that can get rid of carcass as much as vultures do. We will quite literally have a carcass problem if we did and if we didn't have vultures and that would mean a world full of disease um, that we can we can't digest but vultures can. So just that realization and just to see how endangered they were, it was the beginning of like a very huge mind shift for me. And for me, if a story strikes a chord with me, it has a it has a tendency to strike a chord with with somebody else, but but also the setting. So this vulture story was set up, was set in the Mara. And, and the premise of it was one of the reasons that the vultures are, are dying at such an alarming rate is because of poisoning. So they eat poisoned carcass because some, some pastoralists or some herders will poison carcass so that the lions that that come to 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 the boma or to the kraal to the little pen where they put their their cattle. Once they eat the carcass, they die, and then the vulture will come and eat the same carcass, and you the lions will die, and so will the uh, the vultures that eat the carcass. And so, for me, the reason why this story was very important for me is because previously, if you saw if you saw such a story, it would be like, oh my God, these pastoralists, why are they doing this to these poor vultures, right? To these poor lions. But actually with me, I sat down with one of these, one of the herders who actually just that previous night, there had been, at, one of these cows had been attacked. Just when we were, we were on locations, like actually come, come, I go show you. And I watched this grown man shed 
tears because of his cow that and the cow was there it was dying and and what do you this is very painful and this is a man said it's like it's painful it's like i want you to imagine like if you woke up today and someone had wiped out your bank account <laughs> right yes that yeah that painful and it's the same sort of pain where you you will be pushed to do some stuff that sounds irrational but but when you think about it this is not an issue about who's like pastoralist poisoning lions and it's actually an issue of habitats you know it's a look at just how much the diminishing habitats all the the boundaries that we have put i mean decades ago masa is used to be able to coexist very well with 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 lions and and you know they used to roam that land freely and now that is not something that they can do anymore so you may be one may be may be quick to think oh my god this masa is were killing lions but actually no it's like let's look at how much the landscape dynamics have shifted over the years and how what kind of impact that is having on on our lives and at what scale to a point where you know other species are being affected so that was the other thing like the nuance there's a nuance of a story <laughs> and but also like one of the one of the people who's working to actually uh to actually save save who is acting as a bridge between these two the the community and also like the scientific side that is that is trying to study especially birds of prey in the mara ecosystem he's a masai who was born and bred went to school and now he's a raptors biologist from the mara and again that was very fascinating for me because in terms of representation you know mostly you'll see those stories and it will be you'll have you know the scientist or the expert will be someone who's coming in from or actually someone who's been interviewed from from a university office somewhere in Bristol or something and i'm like why is this expert sitting in <laughs> in in europe you know what i mean right um yeah and 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 so that was fascinating for me to see one of the the main characters of that short film lemain he's from the community he understands where this this man is coming from and he understands the science he loves i mean he he's in charge of all the birds of prey in the mara the whole ecosystem wow. so it, it was such a fascinating sort of mixture of things and and that's what made it very interesting for me there's representation there's uh, me being welcomed to actually interact with the nuance of the story and to invite people to to see it's not really what you think it is i'm inviting you to think about it more and voices it's also important for me for myself and my partner my filming partner Thuku for us as local voices to tell that story as well because i think it came out different with us telling it as opposed to if it had been told 
you know, from someone who did not understand the local context and, 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 and all of that. And so that matters. I'm not talking about exclusivity um, in telling stories. I'm talking about inclusivity, actually, because for the longest time, that's what has been missing. Uh, so we are not saying, oh, my God, we don't want you to tell. No, we are saying for some time what we have come to notice and we are beginning to get an agency around is that we have not been included and maybe also us we have not risen up and actually taken the agency with with our natural spaces and with our wildlife and with actually telling our own stories and that's kind of what i feel that the movement there's a very sort of movement that is brewing around the African conservation voices landscape right now. It's like, yeah, I want to go back and tell, talk about this plant that grows in my village, <laughs> you know, and and that's that's been, been, been amazing. Um, it, it's been absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that is, I... I'm so happy that this movement is happening. Like even just in the time that I launched the show, because one of my big goals is I always want to connect with someone like you, like somebody across the world where you are in the trenches doing this and can help us from no matter where we are listening to this show, you could help us bring that perspective to light for us. And whether that's in my backyard here in the United States or, you know, Ecuador and the Galapagos or Kenya, you know, the Mara, like all these different places, there's just a level of nuance that I would never be able to tell if I came there just because I'm not that I'm not from your same place. So how could I tell the story the same way? And I really hope that people listening that no matter always respecting that if you are going somewhere else, you are always the outsider and you need to remember that always need to remember that. And that is why I will, <laughs> I'm always humbled every single day. Every time I sit down with somebody, I am always humbled. I'm like, I don't know anything. I really don't know anything. Like this is, this is incredible. And, and I want to go now into, I guess, I don't know a technical of the technicality of this. I don't know if that's the right term, but I want to just go into your brain for a second and like could you take me through how do you write a story like what are you can even use your vulture um your vulture film as an example but like let's say you're sitting down to your computer or whatever your your system is how do you put together a good story what is your methods the methods to your madness like teach me how, how do you do it like how do you do this yeah Th thank you for calling it that because it, it can actually be madness <laughs> it looks like madness <laughs> most of the time in that there's sometimes they actually there's actually no rhyme or reason but anyway there's a way to do it and before i answer that i just want to reiterate to your earlier point it's actually yeah, it's it, there's this sense of i do want to really look forward i i feel happy when i see people actually coming here and to tell stories uh 
but as as with everything else i suppose there's this idea we, we just we just came off from this amazing congress in south africa called NUF. so NUF is nature environmental wildlife filmmakers and and it was filmmakers from all over africa uh, just coming together for a, a day, days of, of a summit and workshops, and there was a congress that was opened by by the, the CEO of African Wildlife Foundation, and and it, there was such a great sense of sort of just the African spirit coming together. And I was looking at it, and I'm thinking, uh, there's a lot that has been told about this continent. But I was looking at the people in that congress and thinking, my God, this is Africa. This is how Africa looks. Like like it's all these amazing filmmakers, these scientists, these marine biologists, these, these traditional healers, all just like in one, all these color, co co colors and all of that. And one of the things that, that really came strong uh, from that Congress is like, yes, uh, we, we absolutely, absolutely want partners. We want partnerships. We want partnerships, but what people are not, we, we do not want to be saved. We want partners. We want to form relationships. But this idea that Africa needs to be saved, yeah, yeah. you know it's what old. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, because look at this, you know, look, look at this Congress, look at this summit. This is what Africa looks like. And so I just wanted to reiterate that idea of like, yes, let's partner. There's a very big, big move even with Nat Geo, with them opening up this space for African storytellers and really encourage us, encouraging us to apply for grants and, and you know, to partner and to push for our ideas and to have a voice and, and all of that. So partnerships is where it's at, as opposed to what I have experienced in my career, actually working in, in this space to where some people will show up and they already know the story so much so that I didn't feel as if I had the space to actually tell them what the story is because, um, you know, a crew will show up like, okay, this is the shot I want, I want that shot, I want that shot, I want it tomorrow, and I want it tomorrow at eight, and, you know, whatever, and that's it. It was like, actually, no. So we are going into a community. This is how this community operates. This is how the elders operate. If we go there, if they offer you tea, please take tea. Don't say you don't want tea. If they go there, please wear this and don't wear that because that's actually... And and if you ingratiate yourself to the community, why wouldn't that... That will only help your story. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Respecting that, people, it's amazing how far that goes. <laughs> it will only... What it, what it, you know, and, and I have had experiences hosting, hosting crews, international crews, where I've had to put my foot down wow. and say, actually, no, uh, no, we we cannot. That's not possible today because of this and that and that. And so we always say, yes, please come. Let's tell the stories and let's partner. But please you know, leave your biases at the door, you know, check your privilege, you know, as well, 
because you know respect partnership and 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 all of that good stuff that is where our world is headed now <laughs> it's i love it yeah 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 so anyway process so process is is quite interesting because when you pride yourself as a as a documentarian you want to you want to to illustrate truth right but i had something very interesting the other day is that there is no such thing as staged uh, objectivity <laughs> you know and mm-hmm. so as long as uh, as long as i'm putting something in a frame and that's what i am willing i am planning to show my audience already i've introduced my subjective notions to that idea right uh but the way to do that responsibly is to be very aware of what i'm framing what i'm putting in my frame and why i'm as long as i'm aware of that my own subjectivity then i can stay along the lines of telling a story very responsibly and also still stay aware that i'm telling a subjective sort of narrative even if i do choose to lean into it more as long as i'm aware the the problem comes when i do that and i, I have no awareness around it right so like telling a story is for me process is first of all writing uh, and that's where uh, my skill my years in in journalism came in because one of mm. the things that i found myself having a very strong knack for is actually i you do actually have to write out stories before you put them up on screen and so writing treatments you sit down and and you do this you know many 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 sometimes many drafts of what we call a treatment of this story is about this and this and that and this is how it's going to be illustrated it's the story of da, 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 and and you put it out it, you lay it down on paper at the end of the day is that someone will read this one pager uh if they're a producer or a broadcaster and understand what you're trying to pitch in that one page they will they want to feel the emotion of it they want to feel the intent of it they want to feel you know the the message you're trying to to pass across and like in the first time that i started writing treatments with one of my amazing mentors her name is lisa we always laugh about it lisa treat where she's like okay yeah i like where this is going but could we just try this out this way and then notes every every writer's favorite favorite thing is notes you know <laughs> i received notes on my screen <laughs> like oh just waiting for the notes <laughs> uh and so yeah so for me at least the most the most interesting part for me but also the most sort of i won't say difficult but most engaging part of this is coming up with a very clear clear treatment of what it's about because once you have a treatment everything else you know when you go to the field becomes very easy and 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 just to point out a treatment is not is not a script you know a, a treatment is just an idea because idea like it's not possible to script a documentary you're documenting real life you know you know what i mean so you will have a treatment of 
this is act one you know the three the three 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 acts structure act one act two act three uh so the hook the beginning and the the end then you will have a possible shortlist you will probably go on recce and when you go on recce to your location if you're lucky enough you'll come back and you know your structure will change uh depending on the sorts of characters that you've met or, you, or you've introduced and then the shortlist which is where you you actually have to to think about so this is what my first act is so um the shortlist i want this to be short in the morning you know sunrise this is the camera this is the angle uh this is the time this is the so it's usually the camera the time the angle and there's a fourth thing on that column that i'm forgetting but it's very specific things to guide even if i as a writer was not on location my dop will be able to go on location and actually film it everybody on on the crew will be able to follow follow that again keeping in mind that you know you go and everything changes one of of the things that i've i've noticed like we had an idea to to film this beautiful intro or our interview at the backdrop of this beautiful sunrise and then we realized like the time that that we had we had we had like the sunrise was so fast so if we sat down and and filmed our interview at that place like the lighting would just be too different and so we had to spend the whole morning looking for for a different setup for our interview and when you're on location especially when you're on a tight tight very tight schedule losing a morning is a lot yeah <laughs> you can't afford to lose a morning looking for another setup location and so it's always things like that um sometimes a lot of filmmakers say everything that can go wrong will go wrong <laughs> so when you're on location expect that you cannot direct what life to do anything you know so you sometimes you'll be on location just waiting for your beautiful vulture shot and you will not get it and then one day you'll be on a sundowner with your beers and there will be your vultures and you're like <laughs> <laughs> yeah like yeah so it's it's interesting it's magical it's hard it's not the easiest thing especially to be on location but but once i find that once i have a treatment and you have a short list and if you really really want to be ocd like me you have a storyboard and the the storyboard that shows even the tone and the feel film of it everything else become when you go on location everything else becomes so much so much easier so there is the shooting and then there is the editing favorite part that is sarcasm it's not my favorite part editing so one of the things i found myself is that because i i get involved very early on in a project i'm able to fall in very well as a director as well and um normally i will be working with an editor and so you really have to find an editor who you connect with as a writer as a director 
like the editor has to be able to see your vision, but also you also have to find that balance between also having them have their own creative space as well. And that if you strike that balance, it works very well. If you don't, then it can be a more uh, a call for tension. But that's the other sort of like the final beat for editing until when you're doing the color correcting and you have your first draft and then you can get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So how do you get through writer's block? I know that's definitely a thing. I mean, I even have it. I don't do anything onto the scale that you, at least not yet. That's actually something I want to talk to you about a little bit later. But how do you get through writer's block and how do you keep the creative juices flowing, essentially? Uh, I don't get over writer's block. I don't think any one of us ever does, right? <laughs> For me, at least it's, the curse of the creative man. <laughs> uh, it's I don't know. It's there, and sometimes I have the luxury of waiting till I have the inspiration again. Sometimes I don't have that luxury, and so I just have to sit down and do what needs to be done. I have mentors who keep reminding me, one boy. Uh, finished is you know they they say you know it does it doesn't have to be perfect it just needs to be done you know yes <laughs> yeah and I have a lot of trouble with that because hello perfectionism um, same <laughs> yeah yeah and so it's for me it's that fine balance between you know when I'm flow I mean creative flow take advantage of that. When I'm not in creative flow, to be also to be extremely gentle with myself when I'm not in that space, you know, because I guess one of the things we had, as creatives we tend to do is beat ourselves up a lot about when when stuff is just not working. Nowadays, I've had I've had to find the courage even to say when somebody asks me, "What are you working on?" and if I'm not working on anything, I'll say, "Actually, nothing." And I don't know why that is so hard for, <laughs> for creatives. Like, no, I'm not working on that, anything right now. I'm just, uh, and one of the great writers, I forget who, who says actually not writing is also part of writing. You know, the, the not writing part is part of it. And I see, I know that like very, on a very deep level, I know what that means as well. So it's a balance of actually doing it when it needs to be done because deadlines and bills, but also, yeah. <laughs> but also just being extremely gentle with myself and, and letting myself have that sort of space to not be, be caught, being caught up in the, in the, in the stresses of like, Oh, I need to be, creating something right now i need to be creating something right now actually i don't always have to be sometimes i'm much better going to summits and talking on podcasts yes <laughs> and sharing your beautiful knowledge with all of us so let's say that 
someone listening, maybe they are, they are creative of some sort and they want to give their creativity to conservation. In your experience, what are some critical elements that make a good nature story? So what takes something from just reporting the facts, just being like a reporter in the field, I'm in the Mara, this many vultures are being killed. It is pastoralists that are poisoning their cattle and it was for lions. This is what's happening. How do we turn something like that, that where you're just reporting the facts and how do you make it a good story? for somebody to connect with? What are the elements that us as creatives in conservation need? Maybe maybe that's too strong of a word, or maybe it is the right word, that we need to make sure we incorporate in our stories if we want people to connect with what we are trying to say. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. And one that I think, I think about a lot, it makes me think of Don't Look Up. <laughs> you know, the movie, <laughs> like mm-hmm. why, you know, the, the world is ending. Why don't people really connect with the idea of the world is about to end and the, just rather sort of go about them. And, and which is sometimes I may be caught up in. And I think there's, I may not have the complete answer for this because it's something that's still sort of forming in, unraveling in my mind but there's a sense of if I talk about number one, we, we as humans, as opposed to here is me, the expert talking to you, the little people, you know? <laughs> so something that is we as, as humans, if I, if I talk about, you know, how that, if the ice caps in this mountain right here melt, which they are doing at an alarming rate, just the other day I was actually, because I live just by the mountain, I was looking at them and I'm like, there's almost nothing up there. And it's so scary because that affects all the rivers downstream all the way to the to the border of, of Kenya and Ethiopia. And But how do I make that matter? It's It's thinking about we've had a drought for for close to three years now here. Uh, we've not had enough rain to sort of turn down the, the tide. And if I can tell a story about the drought and, and the water and all of that, as opposed to like a story about, oh, climate change, <laughs> you know, uh, because it's not like the people in Northern Kenya don't experience climate change. It's just that they may not necessarily call it climate change. They understand it in terms of like the time when the zebras were all dying and so the cattle were all dying, you know, in that sense. So I do need to tell stories along those lines. So it's it's stories, first of all, language. Language is important, not only like actual language. Can I tell a story and let the Samburu speak in Samburu, you know, language in that sense, but also a language in a sense of, can I talk about drought and water as opposed to talking about climate change in that sense, because that may not connect with the audiences that I'm trying to reach. So language makes for a good story in that is context makes for a good story 
if I give it like a very local context, having Lemayen, who is the Raptors biologist in that in that vulture movie, give it a lot of of local context to a point where if the people in that system see him actually talking about this issue, it makes more sense to them as opposed to if it was a Raptors biologist, again, talking about the same issue with the same message, again, from Europe, there would, you know, there will be a sense of disconnection because representation matters. So language representation makes for a more impactful story. It also matters who's, again, who is telling the story because again, context and representation. But I I would say really just authenticity. If you just tell your story very in a very authentic, organic way, it doesn't always have, like stories, impactful stories don't always have to be stories about gloom and doom, you know? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, which is another thing that we are also like trying to change. We don't always have to tell, you know, stories about nature and conservation that are about, oh, the world is ending. There's this really nice story of all these amazing women who are learning how to dive so that they can, they're all marine biologists, but who couldn't do their own research or data collection because they couldn't dive. And now this organization has come in and is teaching them how to dive and they can go do their science stuff in the ocean. And that is so mind blowing, get tears, you know, (laughs) because it's so beautiful to see someone who said, you know, even before I started this, I couldn't even swim. So they had to start them off at the pool teach them how to swim so that they can teach them how to dive, to do something that they have been in school. These women have masters in marine biology, something they have been learning. So it's telling also stories that are not about gloom and doom where people tend to switch off because uh, life is already hard enough. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. There's no... I mean, how can anybody feel inspired if they feel hopeless? Like, it's like, okay, okay, so what? All right, I can't do anything about climate change. I can't, I'm one person until, you know, the entire airline industry, they are able to switch all of their gasoline, their jet fuel to something that's more sustainable. Like, you know, you just feel so small. But when you hear about a story like that, which is what I gravitate to and a lot of the story, like a lot of the reasons why I have, the show and and tell the stories that I do on here and well mostly through you and you telling your story is I just hope that it puts a little bit of hope out there and that there is some sort of action because if all we hear is doom and gloom I mean even me being in this field this is what I do and I get way down and overwhelmed and days where I'm just like I just want to go have a freaking glass of wine because f this I'm done Like I'm just done and I do this. I'm trying to make a change and even I succumb to it on a pretty routine basis. And so why would somebody who's a single mother that's working in a big metropolitan city that all she's trying to do is make sure her kids have food on the table. Why would she care 
if all I'm doing is telling her doom and gloom. Like, wow. Yeah. So I'm raising children that's not going to have a future. Great. I feel wonderful, you know? But a story like that, you know, these this inspirational story where these women are now learning how to go do their science by probably facing a massive fear of theirs. I mean, that's that sounds way out of their comfort zone. And how inspirational is that? Like, hopefully after that, people are feeling pumped up. They're like, yeah, I can do this too. I can make a difference. I can help save our oceans. So I, I completely agree. And I'm glad that now as we in our generation or us with this mindset are starting to have stronger voices that we're able to tell those stories that yes, we need to be aware and realistic about what's going on. We can't deny that. I'm an optimist. I will always say I'm an optimist, but I'm a realistic optimist. I know the truth, but at the same time, just staring that in the face is not going to make a difference because then what motivation do we have to move on? So yeah, those are the kind of stories that I also gravitate to too. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose that's the, the, the challenge. Like how do we, do we actually stay very true to the to the immediate need to the pressing needs that the environment is facing and nature and all of that but but all, all, at the same time you know we need radical solutions but it also feels as if we also need a lot of radical hope at the same time you know so how do you keep that balance and I, I guess for everyone who's working in this space that's the dilemma that's the, not really the dilemma but that's the that's like the economy yes yeah 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 that that's that's the work you set out to do to make sure that you're doing that but I like that I like I like hope hope that is also like very realistic hope I'm all for we need action, uh, but we also need radical hope. I'm all we need inclusivity in all these spaces because I'm right now I'm very big on that. But also I'm also very big on the idea of not separation, like coming together because we will not we will not solve these issues in silos of like oh yes that region that region. So it's like, yes, we are becoming, we are having this sense of identity and agency around our identity, but it's also very important. And a friend of mine who's, who's Tanzanian and I were talking about this, he's also a filmmaker, like it's also very important for us that we don't fall into that thing of creating separation, you know, uh, of authoring each other because that's not where we need to be going so it's sort of like that that balance uh, of i i can think very globally and I, I guess that's what that means think globally and act locally uh but also one of these days yes i i want international recognition and all filmmakers here and storytellers they very very keen on on having very local localized impact you know so it, again it's that that balance it's very nuanced nothing is there are no simple solutions and no. and, and people who want one clear simple solution you're gonna have to do like a lot more 
work. It's a lot of sometimes emotional work. And I, I guess that's why people may feel disillusioned sometimes because it's a lot of emotional work, you know, thinking about these things and finding like the best way to, to sort of navigate them. And again, sometimes you may feel as if you don't have the space for that and that's okay too, as long as being in that space does not involve doing something that's damaging to yourself or to others as well. Yeah. I think the big thing there is we do need more storytellers. We need good nature storytellers to help connect and share these stories. And have you found throughout your career, have you found any really good like resources where if somebody listening, me included, might want to go somewhere to try to hone our skills a little better? Like how can we tell better stories because yeah, you know, most of us can write or we have some sort of level of competency, but we can all get better. I'm always striving to get better. And so is there somewhere that I can go or someone listening that has really helped you in your journey or books or, or any other resources that might help us get better at doing this? Oh, books. I, I, I really don't. Think so. But let me just point out that I've, I've benefited a lot from fellowships. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that is what like has sort of built and given me a lot of the, the skills and connected me with mentors. Again, I truly believe in, in mentors as well. And for me, that has been my main resource in terms of just finding out what's available out there because again this idea of inclusivity is also about like breaking the barriers of entry in in this space and i've had like one of the fellowships that i was in there with african wildlife foundation at the end of that fellowship like sort of finding myself at the jackson wild summit last year and it's almost mind boggling you know you're you're seated at a stage at Jackson Wild and how so it's that opening doors and breaking barriers and and all of that and there's a lot of resources for example for people who may may be listening and are sort of interested in this idea of fellowships and mentorships which is something that is gaining a lot of traction in the continent um, a good place to start would actually be new for uh, what I, the one that I mentioned earlier, which is nature, environmental and wildlife filmmakers, which is this amazing movement of African filmmakers, but also not only that, but also allies, because again, <laughs> movements need uh, allies. Again, it's not about exclusivity, it's, in, it's inclusivity, it's partnerships, a lot of allies, including um, National Geographic. So the, the new website and the Jackson Wild website, uh, again, are, are really, really great places to start looking at that, especially in, if you're in the region. NUF is amazing if you're from all over the world and you're just starting out in, in sort of nature storytelling, Jackson Wild is, is another like platform that every nature filmmaker should be on. <laughs> the storyteller should be on. It's amazing. So I am a product of 
of fellowships and communities um, such as those. And that has always been my greatest resource, including finding jobs, because that's the other thing. We need to earn money, <laughs> you know, it needs to be a viable sort of economic venture for us as creatives as well. So these are the places where you will find jobs that actually pay as well. So books, no, nothing really comes to mind in terms of that. I do tend to read very books that are not very nature related. I still read a, a, a lot of, of biographies. Right now I'm, I'm struggling through James Baldwin, actually, <laughs> which is and I say struggling through it because it's it's a writer that I haven't interacted with before, but I'm like, why have I never read this? But I guess I feel like as if my mind is mature enough to to read that as well. So fascinating, fascinating subjects as well. So I will tend to read things that help me think. And I think that influences my writing as well. Mm, those are fantastic yeah, resources. Yeah, yeah. And of course, like I'll I'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes too. If, if somebody's like, I've never heard of Jackson Wild. What is that? Oh, we will make sure you know if you are interested in that. I also love to take a moment too for everyone that comes on. You have a moment now to talk to the person that's listening, like the incredible person that is still with us listening right now. What would you like to tell them? Anything that you want to say? Oh, wow. I guess for me, I'm very... Right now, because it's it's at the top of my mind, I'm very alert and, and conscious to this idea of, of having a very organically led you know, stories that are, are led by local voices, but in a very organic way. And I know at this point, it sounds like a, a broken record. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but it's important because, you know, it, it gives us a very different perspective. And, and I think if we are talking about a space where we need to change things. They, there's a very huge space for us to invite ourselves to look at things differently. And also inviting also sort of like um, international, all the filmmakers around the world, you know, no matter where you're from, right? To question narratives to question what has always been put forth as as truth um question it set it aside and and again i i know there's no such thing as objective sort of truth in art or or anything everything is subjective because of the framing and all of that but but there's a place to question everything and to approach our work even to approach works of art that we see with a very critical eye. And I hope to God that that is what sort of education, I, 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 I wish that is what education provided more than anything, like in, 
education in Africa, I, 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 everywhere in the world actually, like to look at things very critically and, and, and analytically. I don't think that is something that I feel like I was taught when I was in school. That only happened <laughs> very, very recently. It happened with with when my world opened up and among very few people that the world opened up to and I have the privilege to sort of look and meet and have conversations with people from all over the world. So it's to have an open mind about spaces, about people, but also to realize like it's our diversity that makes it beautiful. Again, my friend from Tanzania and I, when we were at that treatment phase, which is very profound and we need to write what the story is about. And there was a lot of like back and forth and brain brainstorming. And we were talking about like this idea of like identity is amazing, but also it's identity of myself as an African, but also as myself of myself as a global citizen as well. So, like, how do I find that place to where my feet are on the ground, right? So grounded in who I am, but also like my my head sort of in, is in the sky that I'm part of, of a whole. And it's this diversity that makes us really, really, really beautiful. And each of those diverse ways of lives matters. Um, it matters and it's beautiful and it's important. I'm no longer interested in the idea of of doing things the way other people do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm never going to be like, you know, a European or an American or, or, or a North American or an Australian. Like, I'll never be that. I'm just interested in finding ways that of doing things in a very organic and authentic way but in a way that I can sit with you here and it kind of makes sense to both of us because at the end of the day, we are all part of this like human race, you know, they're all very universal concepts. Yeah, and I guess that's it. I'm, I'm beginning to break out my hippie Bible, so I'll stop that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> Happy oh, Bible, that was wonderful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I completely agree with everything you say. And we don't we don't need more. We we you're Kenyan and it's beautiful. And like that is the story you need to tell. And like sharing that perspective, like because that's that's who I want to sit down with. I want you to be who you are. Don't try to be anybody else other than who you are, because that's what I want. I'm just the authenticity in genuine people and the more people i talk to around the world we're all like that like who are mm -hmm. you like, as, even when i was growing up and, and maybe you have like a similar path because i know we talked a little bit before we sat down about you know time of boarding school and everything like that there was a certain image that i thought i had to be growing up like looking the way i do like i had to be this thing that was predisposed for the way I look and the way I talk and, and all this stuff. And that is what I'm supposed to do. And then we grow up and we're like, wow, actually, that's not the case at all. We can be who we need to be and who we want to be and who we are as you, as Rachel, as me, as Brooke. And that's beautiful. And that's okay. And that is what we have to give to the world, not some sort of 
image that is placed on us because we look a certain way, we talk a certain way, we're from a certain country. No, no, no. We're all individual people and we're all beautiful in our own way. And that is what we have to give to the world. And there's nothing better to give to the world than who we are as individuals. So can I just make one point? Just one. Oh my God, absolutely. Yes. Something came to mind as you were talking because you asked me about what makes a good sort of nature and environment story. And just as you were talking, it came to mind that that a good nature and environment story, for me at least, is also a very human story, Mm. you know. I've been in spaces where there's been a lot of discussion between like um, making very pure natural history, sort of, you know, the blue chip, big uh, natural history, sort of nature and environment and, and, and this other style of storytelling that's coming up that is very people focused and just showing the coexistence of, of people and wildlife. And I see the merit, I see the merit of pure natural history. I see where it's it, it comes from. I think it has its place and and I see that, but but also like I lean very heavily towards the coexistence story because again the way in which nature has been used to really really disconnect us you know like tv has been used or or film or imagery has been used to disconnect or paint a narrative of who we are and and of people is first of all making it seem as if you know there are no people you know who live in these spaces if you watch a documentary of elephants making the long trek from one park to the other to look for water you will see elephants and you will see them you know struggling with a small baby elephant and you will all like oh hearts just tugs at your heart i'm like we need to save these animals yeah 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 yes but again that idea of framing i was talking about what you don't realize is that there are actually people who live in this area that these elephants are crossing across and what has happened is that we've managed to to sort of take out the agency of these people and so it's about any conservation story to me that doesn't talk about the human aspect of it is it has missed quite a big mark and it has done a very huge disservice to these people as well because it's perpetuating a certain narrative, not only stripping people of their agency, but also like completely erasing them from a landscape. And so for me, a nature story is also a very human story, especially because you're communicating to humans, you know. Um, Yes, so I do love, I grew up on pure natural history, but also I like, I like, you know, the 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 very people and wildlife stories as well. That's what I wanted to add. Yes, amen. I'm the exact same way. I grew up on the Discovery Channel, and one of the most and biggest impressions of my life was watching like lions in the Serengeti. You know, I still remember that. You know, and back then I never, because I grew up from pretty humble beginning. So I never thought that there would ever be a day that I could actually go see them and do that. And so 
And then as we get further in our career, just as you and just like me, this whole show, it's like, we realize it's actually all about people. I, I love lions. I love all the wildlife that's in my backyard right now. And it's about the people that live with them. And how do we make them care? How do we tell their stories? What it's like to actually be there and yeah. And to live with the elephants that are going through the drought that is going to in their migration route. Yeah. There's people the whole way, but you're right before there was no showing that, you know, the beautiful BBC planet earth documentaries that we all love. And we're just like mind blown by, but you're right. There's a disconnect between it's only telling half the story. We'll just say that there's a, the other half of the story that's not there, but. Rachel, how can somebody get a hold of you and watch your work or see any of your work, maybe read some of your articles? How can they keep up to date with what Rachel's doing on a day-to-day basis? Well, I'm on social media as well. I'm on uh, Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. On Instagram, it's Ray. The same as on Twitter, I can send you the handles and uh, you can share those if you want. So I'm on Instagram. I am in the process of building my website. <laughs> so, so that will be up as as, as soon as um, uh, it's complete. But at the moment, you can catch up with all the amazing stuff that's happening. I always am very active on on socials, that's Wamboy Ray. That's W A M B U I R A Y. Wamboy Ray on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Oh, wonderful, Rachel. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me, sitting down for the whole Rewatology community, and giving us a deep dive look into nature's storytelling and why it's important. And how to properly tell stories to make the biggest impact. So again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I hope you are feeling just as inspired as me to level up your conservation content. Be sure to check out the show notes of today's episode to watch Rachel's latest film and explore the resources mentioned during the conversation. If you have a question about today's episode, please submit your question in the Rewildologist Facebook group on this episode's posts. As always, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. If you'd like to support the show, some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support this show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at Rewildology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. Lastly, I'd like to thank Focusrite for powering the podcast's sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to Rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>